Welcome to The Sale Ring, a podcast dedicated to real estate brokers, agents, and America's top auctioneers that keep the markets moving. Join your hosts, Sean and Trina, as they talk with most successful realtors, marketing and technology experts, investors, and influencers. This show is devoted to all industry professionals looking to up their game and stay up to date. Welcome to The Sale Ring. Yeah, we've got a great show today. we got Mr. Mike Branley in the studio with us. And uh, Trina, how are you? I'm doing wonderful. How are you, Sean? I'm doing great, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Sale Ring Podcast. Mike Branley, how are you doing? I'm doing well, guys. How's everybody there? Wonderful. Wonderful. Man, Good. I'm doing awesome. We really appreciate you joining us in the studio today. It's always great. Uh, when we have a chance to visit with you. And I want to give everybody just kind of a little preview again. If you're uh, not familiar with Mike Branley, then clearly you're not in the auction business. But uh, Mike <laughs> is the president of the Ohio Auction School. Mike's been around 37 plus years, not quite 40 years in the auction business. Um, you still teach at the Certified Auctioneers Institute, Mike? Yes, uh, once a year there in March in Bloomington. Pleasure to be one of the faculty there at the Certified Auctioneers Institute as well. In December, we're out in Vegas at the uh, NAA's Designation Academy. And one of the three instructors there, along with uh, my good friends Manson Slick and Braden McCurdy, teaching the AARE, the Accredited Auctioneer Real Estate Designation class. That Certified Auctioneers Institute, that's at Indiana University. You've taught there for a number of years, and um, but you're out of Columbus, Ohio area. Is that right? That's right. Right in central Ohio, uh, our auction house is in Groveport. I live just about five miles down the road in what's known as Canal Winchester, and uh, we uh, hail from central Ohio. Very cool. A lot of auctions in that area, I assume. I know Ohio is a large auction state, but you conduct a lot of auctions still personally, Mike, with uh, all of your travels and everything. You still stay pretty active as an auctioneer? Well, I do. Uh, some weeks, two or three uh, a week. Other weeks, uh, if I'm traveling, I've got uh, some good staff that can uh, sub for me doing some consulting around the United States, expert witness work around the United States and, and conventions, seminars, things like that, if I'm presenting or whatnot. So a uh, combination of, of uh, conducting auctions, bid calling and or helping otherwise, or in many cases, traveling. You're a busy guy. Yeah. One of the things that we've talked about in the past on previous episodes of this podcast is your um, expert witness testimony. I know that you get called upon as an expert in the auction industry. Any big cases going on? I know you, you probably can't talk about the case specifically, but any uh, any big projects or cases that you're working on right now? Well, yes. Uh, we had prior talked about our largest case, which was out of uh, Oklahoma in the 46 plus million dollar range. If you, There's different ways to grade cases. One way is just by the amount of the claim mm -hmm. this year number of millions of dollars somebody is suing somebody. And just about two months ago, we got a case. We were engaged to consult in a case in the New York Supreme Court. Oh. And the claim looks to be possibly as much as $75 million. Wow. That's a lot of money. Yeah. It's a tremendous amount of money. And the parties in that case, without being very specific here yet, uh, is, are... Um, some out of the country and some in the country. And 
subject property is one of uh, considerable value, and there's a dispute about how the auction was conducted, and uh, we're helping uh, sort through that. In that particular case, because you can have uh, you can have two different stances, obviously for the the defendant or the plaintiff. Um, which which side? Just out of curiosity, do you get called in most of the time in these cases? It appears that most cases it's the plaintiff because they're the one taking the action, and they they know first that they may need an expert witness. The defendant doesn't know about the case till it's filed. Mm-hmm. And they're sometimes late to the game, and quite frankly, we've had to where they uh, both parties contacted me, and I said, "Well, I'm already engaged with the one side. I can't, I can't help both sides." So uh, it seems like it's the plaintiff. It's not. It is. It is not always the auctioneer. It's not always a seller. Not always a buyer. It's. It's certainly a variety of uh, of uh, plaintiffs that uh, contact us, and yet, yes, there's sometimes it's the defendant. Interesting. Well, again, you're you're a busy guy. You're full of knowledge. You, uh, I guess, that's one way to keep your pulse on the auction industry is uh, where there's business. There is sometimes disputes. Those disputes have to be settled, and somebody uh, in these these kind of niche markets that uh, these different niche industries, uh, I think, auctions fall into that. Um, you know, an expert, uh, somebody, a practitioner in that industry needs to step forward and say, well, this is, um, this is the norm. This is kind of the way that, uh, auctions are conducted and, and, uh, they, they apply law to that clearly. So I feel blessed. Right, to, well, I feel blessed to know a guy like you because I have leaned upon you in, you know, not necessarily in a personal case, but maybe just with questions before and, and said, mm-hmm. Mike, is, is this right? Is this the appropriate way as an auctioneer, that I should be facilitating business, and I appreciate the consult over the years. Well, absolutely. And uh, what I can bring to that conversation, at least on my side, is what I'm seeing in courtrooms, what I'm hearing judges say or juries uh, express or attorneys talk about. So uh, if that can if that can help uh, the auction community, help you and other auctioneers make better better decisions or work through a problem, by all means. I think you hit on something that um, that warrants being called out in this conversation is just because there is a, a norm or a practice today, depending on how a case is settled out there, it may change those operational yeah. procedures. So if you traditionally conducted auctions like this, um, maybe there's no reason to change it until somebody gives you a reason and just shedding some light on that and saying, yeah, look, guys, I know you you used to do this for 70 years, but I'm advising you don't do it anymore because now there's a precedent set. Now there is a case that's called this out and you are at more risk today than you were yesterday. Yeah. It, it, and there's two reasons really. And, and further that we are creatures of habit and we do it how dad did or mom did or how we've always done it. And if it's not broken, don't fix it. And that kind of philosophy, if you will, not all bad, that's not all bad, but uh, the court case can provide some direction to say, you know what, you may want to think a different way. And secondly, subsequent court cases could well reference that court case. It could make it increasingly difficult to defend yourself against it because there's now, as you mentioned, settled case law that might, might not always, but might be used in that case against an auctioneer. While we're going down this path, I'd like to talk about, you know, there's three primary things that uh, you and I had kind of communicate, uh, communicated about uh, prior to today's recording. Uh, 
One of those things is disclosing reserves versus not disclosing those. So let's talk a little bit about, um, I know that you have, um, and I read your blogs, by the way. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm an avid okay. reader. I appreciate your, your uh, when you publish those, I just, I, I store them, you know, kind of store those to memory because I, I think there's uh, that's, that's a good index if somebody needs to refer back to it because a lot of it's tied to a, a case or it's tied to experience that you've seen. But let's talk specifically about disclosing reserves or not disclosing reserves. And I'd like to get your take on that and some of the variables that, um, that people need to consider. Absolutely. I think first, if you're going to disclose reserves, and certainly you're having a with reserve auction, I think that primarily the main thing to keep in mind is that reserve that's published should really be the reserve. In other words, if I'm selling a property that's worth uh, $300,000, or I think it's worth $300,000, and the minimum bid is uh, 175, that should really be the minimum bid, 175, or the reserve should be 175. It shouldn't be 220, but I say it's 175 because the public largely sees a minimum bid stated reserve as the number that if they bid that or more, they get the property. So I think we do harm to the industry if that number isn't really, we we portray it as as the reserve, but it isn't really the reserve. Before you move past that, so it's just for clarity, it's a false reserve. I mean, you are, you're putting out a number that, and, and you're, you're putting that number out there as factual when it's in, uh, in in essence, not, correct? Well, that's the problem is you might say the opening bid today is $90,000. So I show up and the auction starts and I bid $90,000. And then and I would uh, the public would rightly assume that that's the reserve or minimum that's required. And then it gets up to 130 or 140 and the auctioneer says no sale. And I said, well, what, what's going on here? You said the minimum opening bid was 90000 Well, yeah, that's where we started, but that isn't enough to sell it. Well, that, mm. that's just not the case. You've never said otherwise throughout all of your marketing and advertising throughout that whole process. So, yeah. Yeah. To You're sending one message to, you know, we're going to, we talk about inducing people to participate. So you put a false low minimum bid, opening bid reserve out there, portraying it as all it will take to buy it when it's in fact not. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're just we're just as a result be driving more people away from the auction process and more into buying where there's more disclosure, more transparency, more honesty. Is there a lot of state law that will kind of dictate around open reserves and opening bid uh, incentives and things like that? Well, license law, yeah. uh, occupational licensing would play a part, and there are certainly states that would look real seriously at an auctioneer in a licensed state, about half the states in the U.S., or a little more than half, licensed auctioneers in some fashion. And I wouldn't want to be the auctioneer in a licensed state advertising a minimum bid or reserve when that, in fact, wasn't the minimum bid or reserve. You're listening to the Sale Ring Podcast, taking real estate and auction to the next level. Let's talk just for a second about a starting bid. What what is in in your opinion the legalities of calling that a a starting bid an opening bid without calling it the reserve price? Well, I think it leads the public to think that it's one and the same. That the starting bid or the opening bid is the 
minimum bid, which is the reserve, which is enough to buy it. I think people jump to connect those. And I mean, if we're, why, if the minimum bid's 175 on this $300,000 house, why are we saying we can start the bid at, at 100? What's the point? It's not going to sell for 100. Well, I think the majority uh, of the time that's, uh, that scenario is probably not what's in play is that it's a $300,000 house and the reserve price that they're not disclosing is uh is 280 or 285 and they uh they're saying hey the you know the starting bid is $100,000 as as you just said it's an inducement it's an enticement to come and participate in that auction under the belief that you could actually buy this home for $100,000 or more that's right i think that's what that advertisement says when in fact, as you suggested, if the minimum bid's two eighty, they can't buy the property for a hundred thousand. They can't buy the property for one hundred and fifty thousand. They can't buy the property for two hundred thousand. This hundred thousand dollar starting bid. What was the purpose of that? Well, I mean, I, it worked. We got them to the auction, but they walk away saying, "Wait a minute, what are we doing here?" Yeah, I think they. You know, obviously, most people are thinking, "Well, two hundred eighty thousand dollars." If I if I put that out there as the starting bid. It's not going to be soft enough to get people excited and get them to come to the auction. So now, that's right. I would raise the question: Is that a property that should be taken to auction? Yeah. Well, I, I can give you my answer: No. Yes, sir. Um, if, if a guy needs two eighty on a three hundred thousand dollar property, let's uh, stick a listing uh, sign in the front yard and see if we can get two eighty, two ninety, three hundred. But at auction, you know, as a general rule. And we, we're going to be talking about this some um, at the National Auction Summit coming up in September. What, How low does that minimum bid have to be or reserve have to be where it makes sense to have the reserve? And lots of times we feel like two-thirds or 65%, 60, 70% to 60%, somewhere in that range. You wouldn't want to be much over 70% of the value with a reserve. Because mm-hmm. there's no chance, people don't perceive the chance or what we say, the prospect of a deal. They can't, they can't, they don't feel like there's any chance to get a deal. They don't have to get a deal, but at least they want a shot at getting one. Mike, it's funny you mentioned those numbers. Uh, two weeks ago, I gave a class and and the course was, um, it's an old hip shoot that some auctioneers, you know, that, that groomed me over the years and the 30 years I've been doing this. They said, this is not a rule that you can apply to every property, but it's a great starting point. It's a great place to start. If you have a conservative estimate of what retail value is for real property, for real estate, your reserve price should be considered to start somewhere in the neighborhood of 70% of that value. They're applying years of experience to that, you know, and, and again, in bulk at the starting place you know, is going to be very important in that equation. If you have a $400,000 house and the seller says, well, it's worth $480,000, 70% of four eighty may not be soft enough as a reserve price. It, you need to arrive at what a good fair market value for the property is in a retail setting. And then if you apply a 70% factor to that, that's starting to reel you in on what a cash sale, a non-contingent sale at auction you know, where the buyer's inheriting the risk, they're stepping up and, and saying, I'll give this on this day for that property. That's a pretty good rule of thumb. I think so. And I think if the, I think generally speaking, the lower the reserve or the lower the stated minimum bid, if we're calling that all the same thing, the more people you get to the auction or get plugged in or to participate, register, if you will, and you you may get well over 
that 70%. Yeah. But you, as you, as you guys both know, you can't start where you want to finish. Yeah. This conversation that you're having and, and your, your statements about, you know, disclosing a starting bid price, advertising a starting bid, which is not the true reserve of the property, is going to be, here's one sector of the market in the auction business where that's extremely disruptive to a, a kind of a norm or a business practice. In the REO or real estate under foreclosure business where there's ballroom auctions, when we went through the financial collapse back in 2008, nine, and, and so on as we rode that up, there was a lot of inventory put into uh, into play in, in, let's say, the major metropolitan cities across the U.S. It would not be uncommon in Kansas City, Missouri, to see a ballroom auction that has 80 to 100 homes that have been foreclosed on. You have to get a lot of people to that auction, obviously, to sell in that kind of a setting. That's right. The chance of getting a deal on one of those properties. You've got to tease them with a realistic opportunity to get a deal. And 70% or they maybe were doing two-thirds or what have you. You're about to tell me, I think. Well, I, I think you hit the nail on the head when you said tease them. That is, there's an inducement in that advertising that it's a $200,000 house. The opening bid is $30,000. Consumers, whether we, you know, they like to believe this or not, they they like to believe things when they see that in the marketplace, in print, in bulk, and in advertising. They come to that event hoping to buy that house for less than Fifty, sixty thousand dollars that was previously at two hundred thousand dollars in the market. What you don't see behind the scenes, though, is the people that are conducting that auction have to get as many butts in those seats as they can at that event, because usually there's a representative from the finance company that is has taken those homes back. If they look at that event and there's only six people in the room, they're not going to waver on their reserve prices on those houses. If there's 250 people in that room, they're going to say, well, you've you've delivered the market. You know, everybody's here, and I guess the, the price is a price. And now they've got a little bit more of a headlock on, on some of those foreclosed company, or foreclosure companies that say, I, I know here's what we wanted. We've received less. We're willing to write that off and, and take less for the houses. So it's kind of a game that's played. Well, it is. As long as, as you said, as there's enough people there, uh, the lender, uh, the, the holder of, the, of that property says, well, this is the best I'm going to get. Uh, we're there. I, I, there's no other way to get any more, so better take it. And as you said, write off the rest or what have you, if you can show them that the marketing worked. Yeah, but I mean, to our original point, you can't do that um, starting it well res- well under the reserve. Um, I mean, there's just probably not going to be a way, right? I mean, it's not going to ever get up to something that they're comfortable with if it's more than half price discount. We've been saying if, as long as you didn't exceed maybe 70%, yeah, I think yeah. some people respond. But if your reserve is 90% or 95% of the perceived value, very difficult to get people to respond yeah. to that. Yeah. And that may be the root of, of part of the, the issue in the auction business is um, poor training, overzealous auctioneers or new auctioneers getting into the business that are just, they're, they're eager to have an auction and they're trying to force a square peg in a round hole. Yes. 95 plus percent of the real estate in this country is not sold at auction. It's listed and sold traditionally. So that metric should tell you, you know, on the macro that, uh, that's the auctions are a fit for a select class or select group of properties and scenarios. 
Exactly. And uh, you, it's better to wait. As I told somebody uh, in Indiana here just the other day, I said, what does having an auction where the property doesn't sell do? And uh, we have a phrase in the auction business, we like to quote, auctions work. Well, if it doesn't sell, we're kind of sending the message auctions don't work. And how many in that crowd might say, well, that didn't sell. Why would I sell my house at auction or property at auction? He, he couldn't get it done on this one. I'm just going to list mine. So it would seem to me to be better. It would be much better if auctioneers as a whole took projects that had a high degree of success and turned down projects that don't have a high degree of success and do more of that auctions work rather than that auctions don't work. I couldn't agree more. Mike, would you say that when you visit with most of your clients about properties, you're trying to qualify the, the person, the seller, or that client as much or more than you're trying to qualify the property? Oh, exactly right. You've got to uh, get the right kind of frame of mind, reasonable expectations, somewhat, uh, as we say, uh, some urgency in their situation or circumstance, because mm-hmm. if they if they can wait, they're not necessarily a good auction candidate. If they don't have reasonable expectations, they're not a good auction candidate. And third, if they don't have enough equity, then we can do one or the other, that we can sell absolute to the high bidder or we'll publish minimum bid that's aggressive, then they're not a good candidate. I, I think that kind of sums that discussion up right there is you can't help everybody. And in this business, we we want to. I mean, uh, you know, I had a guy pulled me to the side years ago and he said, don't let somebody in. And if you're going to be in the auction business or the real estate business, you can't make the client's problem your problem. Yeah. You can provide a professional service. And as you get more sales under your belt, you'll provide better consult just from the sheer magnitude of the amount of transactions you've had and the experience that you're bringing to the table. But don't try to force it if it's not there. Don't don't ever get overzealous just to go have an auction if you can help right. it. But right. the, the next guy you yeah. talk to that's been doing this a long time will say if, if you haven't had a property that didn't sell at auction, you just haven't had enough auctions yet because it will happen to you eventually. Yeah, and it's, and it's not uh, surprising. It doesn't surprise you guys or me, the one that auctioneers just getting in the business. What do they want to do? They want to have an auction. You know, that's why they got in the business. But every auction's not, or every situation, rather, is not a good auction. So, Mike, are there going to be times where it's you maybe don't want to disclose a reserve out there? I mean, it's uh, I think non-published reserves are probably more prevalent than published reserve prices. Would yeah. you agree with that? I would tend to agree. I think I think oftentimes auctioneers don't publish the reserve. I think they may re- want to rethink it if the reserve is good news. I think there's a good reason to publish it. But if the, if the reserve's not good news, it's too high. Or if a seller hasn't made up their mind or they think, well, the seller's, you know, sitting here at, you know, 175. But if I can, I may be able to work them down a little bit because if I can show them the crowd or show the promotion worked, I, I can, maybe they'll take 165 or 155. I think in those cases, if it's too high or the seller hasn't decided, then don't disclose it. And it, and it's fine. Just have a, public auction, just have an auction outside of Louisiana. That means it's with reserve and, and you can take the high bid, talk to the seller and see if you can get a deal done. You say outside of Louisiana? Well, Louisiana, if you said public auction, it would be an absolute auction. Really? Uh-huh. Now that's interesting. I did not know that. Yeah. All their auctions in Louisiana are absolute by default. And the other 49 states auctions are with reserve by default. 
You learn something every day. That's the reason why I love you having you on this show is um, I've been doing this for 30 years. I, I knew that Louisiana had some unique laws down there as far as property ownership and the way that they're sold at auction. Had never heard that. It's the inverse of what the consumer perception is of an auction and the way it's advertised is it's the polar opposite of every other state. That's right. Of, of everywhere else in the United States. Although I don't, I don't know the consumer thinks auctions are necessarily by default, absolute or with reserve. Maybe most of them wouldn't even know, but Louisiana is certainly uh, the opposite of everybody else. That's interesting. Another great piece of insight from Mr. Mike Branley. We're going to slip away. We're going to hear from our sponsors. We'll be back in just a few more minutes and more with Mike Branley. Are you looking for heavy equipment but unsure where to start? Then you need to check out AuctionTime.com. Find great equipment has never been easier than bidding online at AuctionTime.com. What are you waiting for? Online auctions are closing every Wednesday. So register and start bidding today. AuctionTime.com, the way to buy heavy equipment. Crude oil, natural gas, coal. Buying and selling minerals is a breeze when you have the right energy professionals on your team. Mineralmarketing.com is a leading resource for America's mineral owners. Whether you're wanting to lease or sell your mineral rights, Mineral Marketing has you covered. Mineralmarketing.com, the oil and gas marketplace. Thinking about selling a real estate investment but worried about the taxes you'll have to pay? Property owners just like you have solved their tax issue with a Starker Services 1031 exchange. One call could save you a fortune in taxes. Call Starker Services today at 800-332-1031 or visit online at www.starker.com and keep the tax dollars working for you. Ever dream of owning a country estate, historic home, or lakefront property? Log on to unitedcountry.com. Would you like to retire to a home built on breathtaking acreage in the mountains? Unitedcountry.com. Ever dream of your own private hunting preserve? UnitedCountry.com. Over 30,000 farm, recreational, and lifestyle properties are just a click away, helping people find their American dream for over 90 years. We will help you find yours. Log on now to UnitedCountry.com and find your freedom. And we're back in the studio with Mike Branley. Mike, a great conversation and uh Let's go in a different direction now. Let's talk uh, on break during the commercials. We talked a little bit about opening bid incentives. I'd like to visit with you more because that was interesting. I think that's something that the listeners need to hear. Yes, and I most of this, uh, what's going on in these situations is, unfortunately, the auction is deemed absolute. Mm-hmm. And as we discussed in the AARE designation class, the accredited auctioneer real estate class for NAA and otherwise, selling absolute is the genuine intent to transfer to the highest bidder regardless of price. It is simply that. And some auctioneers use a opening bid incentive in these absolute auctions where it is the genuine intent to transfer to the highest bidder regardless of price, supposedly. Go out in the crowd. I would talk to Trina. I would go up to Trina and say, Trina, what do you think? Are you willing to kick it in at $2 million? Are you willing to give us a nice opening bid here? Or maybe, maybe even at registration, Trina might be required to write down a number 
even to participate. Further, her agent, sometimes the uh, buyer broker that represents Trina, may be compensated not on the final price, but on the opening bid price. It incentivizes the agent to tell Trina, hey, put a big number down there because that's my commission that we're talking about. So all that's fine if the auction's conducted, but it's not fine if the auction is canceled by the auctioneer going out, talking to Trina or Trina's agent or uh, several other bidders, gathering or canvassing that you guys are familiar with that term. We canvass the crowd and see kind of take a temperature and then come back to the seller and say, here's where we're at. We we got 2 million from Trina. We got a million and a half from this other guy. We got a a million two from this other bidder. Do you want to go ahead or not? Well, if I ask that question, do you want to go ahead or not? I'm not, it's not an absolute auction anymore. Transfer to the high bidder, regardless of price. There goes the genuine intent, right? Mm -hmm. That's, that's exactly right. There's no genuine intent to transfer to the highest bidder regardless of price. There's a genuine intent to transfer as long as those opening bids are sufficient. And that's a whole different scheme. And so, you know, if you're advertising absolute, let's sell it. You know, this is a longstanding discussion auctioneers have had for decades. If you're selling absolute, let's sell absolute. And if you're selling with reserve, such as dependent on opening bids or opening bid incentive plans, if you will, then that's a with reserve auction yeah. and that's fine just have a with reserve auction but don't call it an absolute auction it was interesting what you said right before the commercial break about louisiana yeah. and and i don't want to get off topic here but i just i want to reclarify this to make sure i have my head wrapped around it so i've always been under the belief that all auctions are deemed to be with a reserve unless they're explicitly stated otherwise in the advertising but if I heard you correctly before the break, Louisiana is the opposite of that. That's right. And, and Sean, you used the exact wording out of state law, explicit. That's the term, explicitly changed or explicitly held as absolute or without reserve. Then the auction is with reserve by default. And Louisiana, uh, when they adopted the uh, UCC in entirety, uh, well, they didn't adopt it in entirety. Uh, they uh, took parts out or left parts out. In Section 2, they rewrote or, or re, uh, redid. And they decided, if you're in Louisiana, the auction's absolute by default, unless you, um, in essence, explicitly say it's with reserve. Louisiana. That's, that's interesting. I'm taking notes here while you're visiting because that is, um, after doing this for this many years, that's a first. I, I, I knew that their auction laws were different uh, in that state. I did not uh, fully understand that. So great education there. Tell your friends you get your information on the Sale Ring Podcast Show. Opening bid incentives. That is something that we have seen in the absolute auction profession, uh, a lot in the luxury market. You know, higher-end homes, the trophy properties or luxury properties where there is um, an absolute auction that just mysteriously never gets off the ground. Mm-hmm. Yeah, People are working towards it, and there's a lot of money being spent on marketing and expectations being sent. Then you get all the way to the auction, and you're prepared And they said, um, unfortunately, folks, we are not going to launch the auction. We're not going to open the auction. We don't have a uh, an opening bid substantial enough to uh, to execute today. And 
I think uh, the belief out there is, Mike, is that under law, that's that's a legal practice. As long as we never open the bidding at an absolute auction, then we haven't uh, we haven't infringed upon our right to do that. Is that correct? Well, it's correct. You could cancel the auction. I think you could certainly look out the window or stand out in front of the house and say, I think you could say, folks, we just got, you know, we got four people standing here. This is a $10 million property. We're not going to open it up without talking to them or canvassing them. You have the right to cancel and you certainly have the right to cancel for any reason you want to. However, if you're selling absolute and you go out and canvass and you get those numbers, and then you talk to the seller and decide if you're going to cancel. I think that's clearly in conflict with the genuine intent to transfer to the highest bidder, regardless of price, which is an absolute option. You've created a marketing event to go on a, a fishing expedition, if yeah. you will. And uh, if the fish are biting, then we're we're going to um, we're going to try to reel them in. If they're not biting, we we never left the dock, right? Mm-hmm. That's it. And those auctioneers that say, no, that's not how we're not doing that. We're, you know, you don't understand or you're not seeing what we're doing in the right light. Then, OK, show me where you are having an absolute auction, but you advertise it as a with reserve auction and they never can show me one. Yeah. And the point is, if it doesn't make any difference what you advertise or you know, if you can advertise an ab, if you can say it's absolute and conduct it with reserve, why don't you take your with reserve, you know, your your without reserve auctions, pardon me, your without reserve auctions, your truly absolute auctions and put with reserve. Well, well, nobody show up. Right. That's why you're having with reserve auctions and advertising them absolute because you want people to show up. Yeah. You're trying to get the crowd it, there. It, it, and uh, then once they get there, yeah. there's no sale because they're thinking it's an absolute auction. They want to spend a dollar on that million dollar property instead of a million. So that's crazy. Yep. Has this been tested in court? Is there is there a case or case studies out there that uh, you can point to where this is uh, this practice has been tested and, and either won or lost? Well, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in 1850 that, you know, if you're selling absolute, the property in that case sold absolute and the, and the uh, auctioneer took what the court deemed fictitious bids, bids that didn't exist, to run the bid up against the uh, high bidder, make him pay more. And the bidder prevailed, the buyer prevailed in recovering damages because in an absolute auction, you can't bid for the seller. You can't turn it into a with reserve auction. Bidding to the seller would be a with reserve piece or part of that. We've seen cases, I've been involved in a case, one in Dallas, Texas, that involved an auction advertised or held out as absolute, maybe not with the word absolute, but every other word that sounded like absolute, going out of business, complete liquidation, that kind of thing. And yet there was uh, reserves on those items and no sales and things like that. And the um, parties uh, succeeded in suing the seller and in in part the auctioneers for false advertising. Did you say that first, uh, that first case was in 1850? That's right. That's, that's, a, that's, a that's early a long, precedent. <laughs> yeah, that's a long time ago. And yeah. you know, obviously, it that's is. an early precedent to be set. That would fall, I, I assume, under fraudulent bidding or fraudulent inducement? Well, fraudulent, fictitious, fraudulent misrepresentation, that kind of thing. Shill bidding? Um, shill bidding, exactly. That first case is a good example of what auctioneers would largely today call shill bidding. Exactly. That's still a practice um, that obviously gets called into question. I, I think as much as 
most things in uh, in the auction industry, whenever there's question about the legitimacy of what just transpired is, was there an actual bidder bidding against me? And uh, transparency in this business is kind of by necessity has taken, you know, the, the front of the stage. The auction event, the performance of an auction has got to be transparent out there because it's uh you know, there's just been so much of that that's happened over the years that I, I think the public has become not numb to it, but more aware of it. Oh, there's there's no question. The public has become more aware of it. And further, they have other ways to buy things. I can click on my phone, yeah. put it in my cart and have a device dropping on my front porch or I can have my groceries put in my refrigerator. I don't even have to get out of the chair. However, I'm going to attend this auction where the auctioneer is taking bids out of the air against me. And you've heard, Sean and Trina, you've heard auctioneers say, I can't get the younger crowd to come to my auctions. They're not interested in auctions. Well, you know why? Because they can buy stuff a lot easier, more transparent, more honest, more straightforward other ways. And they'll continue to do that if we continue to mistreat them. I agree wholeheartedly. That's uh, It's going to be a lot of training the consumer to get them to uh, get interested in uh, live auctions, online auctions. And I was thinking about the online method of marketing. You know, a, a lot part of this industry is starting to migrate significantly, uh, dramatically over to the online auction business. Those records, uh, I think that you're finding as as well as what I've heard is they're not only very kind of organized and and stored, you know, in in perpetuity, there's a perception that you can do some things online in a bidding event out there and and possibly not get caught. They don't realize that those records are not going anywhere. They can be called back up um, off of those servers and (laughs) they will sneak up and bite you. Uh, where you don't want to be bid if you're if you're using that as a tool to do something that you can't do on site anymore. I think it's fair to say that the online provides even greater opportunity yeah. to place bids that aren't genuine or fictitious because you could how difficult is it to register under a new name or fake name or something or and and then bid against you know other people getting it up to the reserve or what have you or absolute and bidding. And then secondly, the problem for those folks that take that opportunity is that those bidding records, they may delete them, but the software provider may still have the records. And if there's a dispute on a, on a, on a material item, a large dollar item, it's not difficult at all for the attorneys or the court to, to uh, subpoena or uh, get a hold of those records. And it's laying right out in front of them. That is the nail in the coffin in uh, in a case where you have uh, purported or, or test, uh, testified that you did one thing, and, and in turn, it's proven that you did another online. It's That, that kind of closes the door. As we say in some cases of all types, of course, uh, it's over. It's, <laughs> it's, uh, that's it's when the one side says, let's go out in the hall and settle this. Yeah. Let's sit down, and I think we can, uh, I think we can work this out because there's no answer to it. All that misbehavior, all that misrepresentation, all that, to some extent, fraudulent behavior is documented. That's just the worst. Yeah. Absolutely. The Sale Ring, online at www.thesalering.com. Mike, what are we missing out of today's episode? We've talked about disclosing or not disclosing reserves and, and obviously the pitfalls of 
you know, maybe in, in enticements that are given uh, for low minimum bids that are not factually or actually the reserve price. Uh, we've talked about opening bid incentives and not having the true intent in an absolute auction to sell property, but you know, you're creating advertising campaigns that are driving people to the event. But then you're trying to solicit opening bids before you, you decide whether you're going to open an absolute auction or not. That's that's a no-go. That's that's not right. And yep. fraudulent that's inducement, right. what, uh, what are we missing? Well, we mentioned uh, or we talked earlier fraudulent inducement. And briefly, an auctioneer that says, for example, I have a $10,000 bid over here. Trina, you need to be $11,000. Mm-hmm. That's all fine if there is a $10,000 bid and... Trina, to outbid that $10,000 bid, you have to be 11000 or more than ten at least. But when I say I've got ten and I don't, there's no $10,000 bidder. I'm pointing up at the sky. I'm pointing at a doorknob. And Trina, you have to be eleven. That qualifies as, simply put, the legal principle here is fraudulent inducement. I'm inducing Trina to bid eleven under false pretenses. Yeah. Okay. So that same scenario, what if Trina... <laughs> never ends up bidding. I mean, how, how do you explain that to your seller as the auctioneer that did that if that last bid never comes in and after you've induced a fictitious number? You just back it back out to what the actual last bid was? How do you, how do you even explain that to somebody? <laughs> you hit the nail on the head, as we say. Yeah. Uh, I've got 10000 You need to be 11000 11000 Trina. All right, I got five. Give me 6000 Yeah. Well, what happened to the tent? Yeah, where did that uh, go? <laughs> disappeared. Well, it wasn't there to start with. Yeah. And again, back to our, gosh, I can't get the younger generation to participate in my auctions, or I don't know what's wrong with the millennials. They don't want to jump in and, and uh, participate in our live auctions, or, or for that matter, maybe even not bid on our online auctions. Well, guess why? Because yeah. we're doing crap like that. Yep. They've seen it. They've yeah. seen it. Aver- they've seen all the problems in the newspaper or on Twitter or whatever, you know, come to light. And they're like, yeah, I don't want to do that. It's I don't want to do that. To. I'm going to yeah. sit on my, I'm going to sit at home, pull out my iPhone, hit yep. put add to cart and yep. have it delivered. Mm-hmm. And I'll even pay a little more. See, the, the, the big draw to auctions historically has been the chance to get a deal. Mm-hmm. Well, if you take that away and you're going to mistreat me, if I'm a millennial or a younger person generally, I'll shop retail. I might even pay a little more as long as you don't mistreat me. Yeah. And Amazon doesn't mistreat me. Mm-hmm. Walmart doesn't mistreat me. Well, Countless other Walmart. retailers <laughs> don't, uh, you know, they don't bid against me or yeah. no sale items. When I take a mixer or blender up to the front counter and say, I want to buy this. And they say, well, it's a no sale. We're going to put that back. They don't say that. But auctioneers say that. Mm-hmm. We've got some transitioning with this new generation. Uh, if we want to keep them interested in the in the live or online auction business, we have some work to do, some training and, and some conditioning on them to do. But I, I think it's still very doable. You know, auctions uh, auctions have been around for a long time, and, and everything transitions. I, th- I think our, our mindset has to be as auctioneers, we have to transition mm-hmm. as an industry to attract them and keep them interested in what we do. That's right. And, and Sean, we can do it. We've got to decide that we're going to run and not calling out the industry as a whole. But I'm saying 
some auctioneers have got to, some in the auction industry have to decide, okay, if you're going to stay in the auction business here in the next 10, 20, 30 years, uh, you're going to have to shape up. Uh, You're going to have to, uh, it's got to be ethical, it's got to be honest, it's got to be transparent, it's got to be disclosure, it's got to be uh, accommodating that younger generation bidder that wants to be treated fairly and equitably. And, uh, and, and that's how we can attract them. And, and certainly there are auctioneers doing that. Yeah. Guys like you are going to be busy, Mike. I Mm -hmm. I think all of us are going to be busy just trying to train and retrain and educate, uh, and police, you know, we have to police our industry just a little bit to, uh, to kind of help preserve it. If that's how we're, we're going to make our livelihood, we've got to protect, uh, we have to protect our industry. Well, and spread the good word. Uh, the National Auction Summit, uh, NAA, your state associations, mm-hmm. Designation Academy, Certified Auction Institute, we have opportunity to get the word out, and we have an opportunity to spread the good word and, and educate auctioneers on, the oppor- quite frankly, the opportunities yeah. that lay in front of us. And so uh, those kind of uh, entities can, uh, can help us educate, as you said. Mike, as always, it's been an informative and uh, just kind of a fun-packed session here. I've taken so many notes out of this, as I always do, but we we greatly appreciate you being on the show today. Yes. Sean, Trina, thanks for having me. Of course. You bet. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for tuning in, and we look forward to seeing you next time inside the sale ring. This episode has ended, but your journey to greatness continues. To access all resources and links mentioned in today's show, head over to www.thesailring.com now. That's www.thesailring.com.